One minute I was there, the next minute I was over a cliff. So I landed on a um, cliff edge and then uh, on my face. So see, so that did take some skill. Now we're really putting effort into this. But I didn't stay there, I didn't linger long. I fell now again, rolling off that one. So a total of 30 feet landed on my face again. Okay, so you see what I mean? This is, this is not simple stuff for beginning TBIs, right? This is some effort going in here. So, um, okay, so another thing when you have TBIs is you suddenly forget what you're talking about. So where, what was the last thing I said? I fell off a cliff, I fell off a cliff. Okay, so about a year later, Walter Reed put my face back together again for me, and um, if you don't like what you see, you can take it up with them. Hello, and welcome to the TBI Family, a podcast for caregivers of service members and veterans who've experienced traumatic brain injuries. This program is produced by the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, otherwise known as DIBBEC, and I'm your host, Dr. Scott Livingston. In this episode, we're going to talk about using art as a way to deal with the challenges of caregiving. First, though, we wanted to remind you that March is Brain Injury Awareness Month. DIBBEC dedicates this month to getting people to think ahead. To us, that means being safe by trying to prevent traumatic brain injuries, through the use of protective equipment and common sense. It also means knowing the signs of a traumatic brain injury so that you can recognize it if you or a family member sustains an injury. And finally, we want people to think ahead by getting help if they need it. The sooner a TBI is diagnosed and a course of care put in place, the more likely it is that a TBI will have fewer long-lasting consequences. You can help spread the word about traumatic brain injury during the month of March through your own social media accounts. Just go to divbic.deco.mil and download Divbic's hashtag card to share on your social media accounts. Look, I really didn't know what a hashtag card was either until the social media team here explained it to me. So let me explain it to you. It's basically a piece of paper with the Think Ahead logo on it that allows you to write a personal message about brain injury that you can share with your followers and friends. Take a picture of yourself or maybe a family member holding that sign and share it on your social media accounts with the hashtags thinkahead and BIA month. We can't wait to see your pictures. Now, let's talk about caregiving and art. To get started, we're going to bring in our producer, Terry Welch. So Terry, how did art become one of the ways caregivers are helping alleviate the burdens of caregiving? The arts and war have always had a very strong connection. Everything from Homer's Iliad to the Hindu Bhagavad Gita to our national anthem are basically responses to war in one way or another. But it wasn't until the 1940s that the concept of art therapy came into being. There are a lot of discussions about what art could do for people who are struggling with communicating difficult feelings. The act of making the art has been shown to have therapeutic value, and the art itself becomes a way of looking at what the person is dealing with. I spoke with... Yeah, my name is Bill O'Brien, and I'm the Senior Advisor for Innovation to the Chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. He said that in the early 2000s, the art community saw that art could be a way to help people deal with the difficulties of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, as we had experienced as a nation this war carrying on, I think we all started to recognize um, that there's a real toll that was being 
taxed on a small number of the population, really, that was carrying out these wars that included both service members and veterans and family members, um, and that there were some psychological health issues that were really intriguing to us because they seemed to be, in some ways, calling for meaning-making and some of the creative arts therapy kinds of things that we'd been looking into as a means to really respond to an urgent issue. So once the NEA decided that art could actually be helpful, what were the first steps that they actually took? Well, there may have been art therapists working with individuals in some capacity since the wars began, but the first organized effort was the creation of a program called Operation Homecoming. We would send some of the best writers that, uh, that, that we know of in the country who are interested in giving back to the military um, to aircraft carriers in theater uh, over in the Middle East on bases to provide some support on the craft of writing. Uh, the idea, I guess, back then was to create a platform for the wartime experience to be shared. Operation Homecoming actually led to the creation of a very well-received book that features stories from service members and their families. The team at the National Endowment for the Arts realized there was a real need for the arts here, so they began working with the DOD to include art therapy in the mix of treatments for the invisible wounds of war, both TBI and PTSD. So the NEA created a new program called Creative Forces, aimed at helping service members. And they reached out as the National Intrepid Center of Excellence, which we call NICO, obviously, stood up at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Very early in our conversations with them, we recognized, as did the military medical folks that we were um, talking with, that this is a really complex and wicked problem, you know, in terms of the signature wounds or the invisible wounds. They're spiritual and existential in nature. Um, and that really leads you to, I think, a, an understanding that putting the arts at, at the core of that process helps to make visible some of these invisible wounds. Um, there's mask making, songwriting, um, creative writing and therapeutic writing, and all of these efforts in and of themselves uh, do have, we feel, some sort of healing quality, and we're really trying to drive the, um, the hardcore medical research forward to understand what are those benefits and what are, how do we measure them and how are they best leveraged. Um, but I think the other thing in a team approach of integrative medicine like they have at the NICO, trying to address these invisible wounds, the output, the art, <laughs> the mask, the poem, the song, ends up becoming a communications tool that improves the ability for everybody who's working on these problems with them uh, to, to perform better. Were there other arts programs besides Creative Forces and NICO? Definitely. A lot of existing arts programs began including opportunities for service members. For example, Suzanne Bethel is the director of the Art League in Alexandria, Virginia. She recently told the NEA's podcast, Artworks, about how they created the IMPART program. Uh, the Art League is a visual arts nonprofit. We have a mission to nurture the artists. We do that through a school that enrolls um, 6,000 students. We have an art gallery that has a membership of 1,000 people. And we have community outreach programs, one of them being the IMPART program. The IMPART program started as an impulse I was having a conversation um, with someone who had come to one of our openings and she was explaining how much her art classes and her participation in art shows meant to her during her cancer treatment. It's about five years ago and I kept on 
coming across, as we all did, reports about um, returning injured military personnel. And um, in this area of the country, we certainly see Walter Reed and Fort Belvoir, and they're sort of iconic discussion points. So just started having a conversation with some of the other artists um, here at the Art League, and so I thought, well, we can do that. We can try that. We're naturally set up to be a home for that kind of program, and Blair seemed the, the person to kick this off, and I have to say that it's succeeded beyond our wildest expectations. It's really been an extraordinary process. Other programs were created from whole cloth with veterans in mind. Sam Pressler was a student at the College of William and Mary and was researching veteran medical treatment for a paper when he said he was stunned by the disconnect between what service members and their families were going through and how little most civilians knew about their experiences. And as someone who'd lost a close relative to suicide, he'd seen how humor had helped him and his family in a dark time. So he founded the Armed Services Arts Partnership, or ASAP. When we have disconnects, we tend to use humor because uh, it's one of the humor and laughter are one of the more universal languages. Uh, and so, as a very naive 21-year-old uh, college student, I thought stand-up comedy class for veterans is the answer to those problems. <laughs> naive or not, the program has grown quite a bit since it launched at the William and Mary Center for Veterans Engagement. Down there, we started with a, a small writing group, uh, a music program, and a stand-up comedy class for veterans. Uh, and we've been fortunate now to expand from Hampton Roads to Washington, D.C., where we offer uh, classes in stand-up comedy, improv, creative writing, and storytelling. Uh, all of our programs are intro-level classes. Uh, they are about seven to ten weeks in length, and we're not explicitly art therapy. We're much more art education focused. Uh, and so in those programs, we focus on skill building, uh, fostering a place for expression, and allowing veterans and their families to have a, a place to connect with one another and, and build camaraderie, but then providing a platform and a stage so that you can have your story told to an audience of people who oftentimes are civilians and may not have heard these authentic stories. And so we use that platform to provide access, engagement, ideally an educational platform for people in the community um, to better support uh, veterans and military families. So the voice you heard at the beginning of the podcast before the theme music was Maureen Norman, who was a participant in the comedy classes. She's an Army veteran who sustained three TBIs and was skeptical about signing up. I didn't know what to expect, and then when I thought I understood what it was, I didn't like it, but then once I kept going, you know, it's taken me all the way to the White House. What's not to like? <laughs> did she say the White House? She did. Participants in ASAP have not only performed at open mic nights, but performed for President Obama at the White House. In fact, that clip was from her White House set. Terry, do we know what the effectiveness of creative arts therapy is in treating these service members and veterans? Has any research been done in this area? So there has been some research, and a lot of it has actually been positive, found positive results. I spoke with Dr. Elizabeth Warson. She is a former professor at George Washington University, and now she's in private practice out in Colorado. She said that there's a lot of research that still needs to be done on this, but it's kind of a hard area to research. For example, at the NICO, where art therapy is part of a larger program, how can you tease out exactly what the effect was of the art therapy as opposed to all of the other uh, interventions that are taking place there? And she said that makes it really difficult to figure those sorts of things out. You know, the one NIH study that was conducted on mindfulness and art therapy with breast cancer survivors, um, when you look at it in great detail, it's done at 
Thomas Jefferson University, I think it was back in 2008. Um, it was curriculum based, so it was really challenging to figure out what was working. Was it the mindfulness? Was it the art therapy? So it was a really challenging um, study just looking at it in terms of replicating, but it was a landmark study because it was the first, I believe it was the first NIH study in our field. Now, I will say it's worth noting here that a lot of these programs we're talking about are not what you actually call art therapy. Art therapy is conducted in a clinical setting to achieve medical goals. That doesn't mean there isn't a value to making art, though. Here is the NEA's Bill O'Brien again. You can use your experience and your unique worldview and make something of it. Um, and when you make something of it, you have then a product that allows you to speak to the world and the world to understand you better. In a clinical setting, that has a really useful uh, output so that your doctor and your psychiatrist and your speech therapist all have this as a, as a communication enabler. Out in the community, it, it serves a different purpose. It, it allows all of us to, to come into a deeper sense of what the wartime experience is. And I think we all need to know what that is. And I think, by and large, we're all very interested in it. And Suzanne Bethel echoed his sentiments. The IMPART program was never intended to be art therapy, and it is not an art therapy program. It's, it's been something that's evolved, and we've, we've, we've been humbled by, by the, the idea that it can produce therapeutic results. We're not tracking that, and we're not setting ourselves up to preach that we provide that kind of therapy. We're just glad that in terms of the statements about those who've, who've participated in the program, that they found some resolutions in terms of their therapy goals, and I think that's, that's great. I think that's something that Walter Reed and Fort Belvoir are looking into through the Intrepid Center, and that's, we have a connection with the Intrepid Center, and that's where we have a lot of referrals that um, come to the program. Art is a healing part of our world, and I think that's what they've discovered with this. Can these programs help caregivers? They seem to be aimed mostly at service members and veterans. They do seem that way, and in part because they were initially created for that reason. But they're expanding because they see the need to help family members and caregivers. So we're starting now to really have an uh, expanded focus that includes family resilience in both clinical and community settings. Um, and we have a dedicated uh, creative arts therapist at Fort Belvoir, one of our creative forces sites who is helping us to understand, think about how we can tailor some of the things that we've been doing for service members and veterans and provide those same kinds of um, opportunities for family members. And some of the programs have just evolved naturally as they realize caregivers could use this help as well. For example, there was a program created by the Writers Guild. The Writers Guild is basically the guild for all of the professional writers who write movies, Broadway plays, TV shows, so it's the best writers uh, in the country. Writers Guild East is the the office that's uh, that's in New York City, so they have a lot of playwrights, but also a lot of television and and movie folks as well. And they have a foundation where they want to give back to um, you know altruistic causes. And close to ten years ago, they started focusing on giving back to the military. And their first impulse was pretty natural. Um, let's let's work with uh, people who've been wounded. And um, Their whole notion was they didn't want to pretend to be therapists, but they thought that there was something healthy uh, about this, and they wanted to come in and help provide people with uh, the ability to put their stories down. 
Um, and they, they worked with different types of populations. I think they worked with some amputee populations and um, they went into hospital settings in, in various parts of the country. And somehow they just kind of, as they got to know these people and their families, uh, the, the thing that they came into us for funding for, and it was an interesting narrative um, for me to hear, is that as they got to know what was happening with these people and with their families, they started to become really intrigued by uh, the, the issues related to caregivers. Um, so they focused a program specifically on caregivers um, where they, they partnered, I think, with the Wounded Warrior Project and they would help identify um, these people who were out isolated, um, whether it's a spouse or a parent or, or, or whoever was taking the brunt of, of the caregiving role. Are caregivers taking part in any of these programs that we've been discussing? Some of these programs are lacking family members and caregiver participants now, or at least as many as they'd like. Uh, some of that might just be because of who chooses to take part. Sam, for example, said his organization is actively seeking family members and caregivers. Service doesn't just impact the person who's directly uh, serving or in combat. It also impacts the family, uh, the mother or husband who is uh, back home taking care of the kids and doing that alone. It impacts the kid who has to you know, deal with a father or mother not around for a long period of time for, or dealing with the trauma that may come home. So we really believe that it's important to give a space for everyone who's involved in that unit. Uh, and now more recently we've added caregivers beyond just immediate military family members because they're also part of that. Um, and we think it's important to convey, to provide an opportunity for this engagement for all those involved in the veteran military experience and then give them a platform to convey those experiences. And some caregivers are taking part. We did a, a veterans open mic at Dogtab Bakery, which we do every month. And, and in, Dece in December 2016, one of the storytellers was a woman who she was a caregiver. And she told this incredibly compelling story about her experience as a caregiver. And I think people, I mean, me in particular, but other people in the room were able to walk away with a better understanding of that. And, and it's definitely, um, you know, as the Dole Foundation has made this known, the Hidden Heroes piece, I, I think it is something that even beyond the military family member uh, is, is very much uh, hidden from the broader society. That caregiver he's talking about is named Betsy Eves. Now Betsy works as the program coordinator for the Yellow Ribbon Fund's caregiver program, but her experience points to one of the many reasons caregivers might not be taking advantage of arts programs. Her husband suffered from service-connected conditions, including TBI, that ended his military career. When the military sent them to the Fort Belvoir Warrior Transition Unit, she had a revelation. It wasn't until I started meeting other spouses in the same situation that I realized that there's a title to what I was doing, and it was called caregiving. As soon as I figured that out, I kind of jumped into the caregiver community here with both feet and immersed myself in as much of it as I possibly could. That seems to be a common thread. People aren't realizing they're caregivers, and because of that, not realizing that there are programs and resources available to them. Yep, that's an ongoing problem. And Betsy said it was one of the reasons she wanted to tell her story. Um, I was kind of really excited to share it with the general public and to have the platform that ASAP provided me to do so. Being on that stage at Dog Tag with ASAP allowed me to 
in a safe space, talk about the hard stuff. Talk about the things that you don't talk about when it comes to being a caregiver. Um, and so I was able to share those hard things. And then I was also able to share the good, joyful moments as well. And the, the happy moments when therapy is going well. And so um, there wasn't a dry eye in the room at the, at the end. And that's another part of what makes these programs valuable. It makes caregiving visible. For example, that Writers Guild program opened the eyes of many of its participants. They were able to come to New York and, and say things like, I thought I was so isolated and I thought I was the only one going through this. And it, it is so meaningful for me to see that other people who are dealing with this are, are, are feeling the same way. One of the people who took part in the program was Melissa Komu. So my husband, um, when he was in the hospital, was reached out to by Wounded Warrior Project. And then Wounded Warrior Project reached out to me as his family member. And um, just in my interactions with them, they asked me sort of what I was interested in. And I wasn't, you know, really interested in bike riding or Odyssey groups. But I, I always listed riding as my hobby. So I was invited to go to a wonderful writer's workshop with the Writers Guild Initiative in New York City, which was co-sponsored by Wounded Warrior Project. So they flew me out there and put me up at a very nice hotel, and I went to work with the Writers Guild um, every day for, you know, like a long weekend. Melissa, who's now the director at the Military and Veteran Caregiver Network, said the program didn't simply help her deal with being a caregiver, but made her trust her own voice. I can still remember the most validating moment of my entire writing life is, you know, very timidly I shared one of the poems that I had written, and uh, Mr. Weller leaned back and, and just sort of said, did you really write that just now? And I was like, yes. And he, he said, that is very, very good. And, um, you know, the validation that came from that moment was really inspiring um, and really, really made me think about my writing in a different way. In fact, Melissa received even more validation when her poetry was published as the book Sleeping with the War. To be honest, I was terrified to to share my poetry. Um, ultimately, it's very personal and um, very intimate look at my life um, with my husband and, and his rehab and recovery. So I researched publishers that I felt were interested in, in the veteran's perspective, to be honest. And I thought maybe if I could market it as this is a veteran's experience by proxy, like a family member or a caregiver experience. And in my search, I found um, the War Writers Campaign, and they um, have been, they're a nonprofit publisher. They work closely with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And that's that sort of nonprofit that need to share um, the sort of idea that your stories are healing um, and, and sharing your story helps others not feel alone. Um, that really was in sync with what I felt I had written. Now, Melissa knows that publishing or even sharing one's work might not be the goal for every caregiver who takes up an art program, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't consider art as a way of relieving stress. I would honestly say that my self-care practice is writing. Um, I found it's really it's affordable. All I need is you know a piece of paper and a pen or my phone. And it's a really nice way for me to write out negative emotions or uh, write things I'm grateful for or, or appreciate um, and just sort of express my view or my perception of my reality um, in a way that helps me stay focused um, and calm. 
it's it's always been a great stress reliever for me. Um, my family knows that if I'm sitting in bed writing, that that's my me time, and um, I could be writing about them. I could be writing about the circus. I could be writing really about anything. Um, but that connection with me, with my pen and paper, is is a self care practice. It, I mean, it's very therapeutic for me. Many caregivers may find participation in an arts therapy type of program to be frivolous and find it hard to work that into their already busy schedule. I think you're probably right, but Bill O'Brien said that the self-care aspect of art can not only be beneficial to the caregiver, but to the care recipient as well. Focus on self is important because the job they're doing is tremendously important. Um, that the responsibility that they're left with on a day-to-day basis um, to help uh, address the aftermath of war uh, is enormously important. When you are in a position, I can only imagine, but I can certainly appreciate that if you're in a position where you feel that there's a tremendous amount of physical, psychological, economic stress that's involved with this kind of responsibility, you have to provide an opportunity for your own self-care to be a part of the picture. Just to be able to, I mean, that that's the thing where it can become selfless. <laughs> it's kind of a weird catch-22, but um, if you don't take care of yourself, you're just going to make it harder on yourself, and then, you know, you're, you're less at your full capacity. And it bears repeating. Telling the caregiver story is important because military caregivers are, whether they see it this way or not, providing a service to the country by, as Lincoln said, caring for those who've borne the battle. Everyone I spoke to made the same point. Caregivers have a story that deserves to be told, and they're the best ones to tell it through whichever medium they choose. When you address some of these really um, complex um human condition issues um, in a mask uh, that was on the cover of um, uh, National Geographic or uh, in a song uh, that, that moves people at an open mic. That crystallization of what that experience is no longer looks like illness or damage. It's actually a skill. It's a craft. Uh, you are my sunshine is, you know, the lyrics are about I'm going to go jump, it, jump in a river and drown. You know, this stuff isn't all just happy and light. Um, but we want to engage with those because it helps us understand who we are when we're feeling good and when we're feeling bad. Um, so I, I really do like that sense of um, how art making that explores these complex existential or metaphysical issues that anybody can experience. I mean, Hank Williams is speaking for all of us, and he didn't. He he has no PhD <laughs> from Yale, uh, but he does a pretty good job of it for me and for a lot of people. And I think these folks who are coming through these programs ha- are gifted in that same way. Um, and when they're making art, in some ways that explores and communicates what this experience is, it's meaningful, it's useful, it's important, and it's it's crafty. Um, it doesn't feel like damage as much as it is insight. The expression uh, reverberates. It allows you to project your voice beyond a small room and, and influence other people and, and share your stories, have people connect with those stories, and also change people's perspectives about 
who you are as a person, as a veteran, as a military family member. We're recognizing there are certain kinds of arts activities that are particularly suited for this kind of wellness pursuit. Um, and it might involve, you know, very hands-on types of things like um, blacksmithing and glass blowing and um, metal forging. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that really, this gets back to the question you said earlier that, you know, people don't feel like they're really, you know, positioned to be an artist. Um, the truth is, I think everybody's an artist. It's just, you know, are you only talking about that thing that happens on a stage or are you talking about um, leather making and, you know, that kind of thing? From the perspective of the person with the TBI, I'm not a caregiver, but there is an isolation that comes along with having a TBI. And I can imagine that comes along with being a caregiver for someone with a TBI. And if nothing else, getting out of the house, laughing, seeing some new faces, um, it can it can only be beneficial. And I do think it's really important that caregivers find a way to express themselves in a non-judgmental way. Um, you certainly have the moral permission to share your story. You own your story. Um, no matter how hard it is, no matter how dark it is, I certainly don't want to be known for my hard and dark stuff, but I feel that my sharing of some of the darkest, most intimate days of my life um, has opened doors and has helped caregivers realize that they're not alone. Um, that's one of the most rewarding parts of this whole experience is, you know, I thought I was the only one. I've had caregivers come to me and say that, especially with um, the nighttime issues that that seem to plague some of our veterans, um, you know, when the night comes and it's dark and lonely and you're the only other person that's, you know, witnessing this and you're half asleep yourself, it's very hard to feel like anyone else in the world could ever understand that. And certainly having permission and safety and, and feeling that your voice matters um, can really help you connect with people that have been through something similar um, and, and, you know, reduce that isolation that so many caregivers feel. I would say that you don't have to come to an open night, mic night to express yourself. I would say that it's finally our turn to be okay with our journey through this. So the last 10 years, it's all been about the service member. It's all been about those guys coming back with, you know, amp amputated legs and major injuries. And now all the PTSD and the invisible wounds are coming out. But now also, the wounds from the caregivers and the spouses are coming to the forefront. And it is our turn now to be recognized as having been a part of the war and the, ba and the battle. And we need the support just as much as the service members do. We'd like to close this episode of the podcast with an example of some of that caregiver-created art. Melissa Komu reads for us from her poem, Sleeping with the War. Slow fear as the goblin tears the sheets. I wake up silent and cold. Shocking whispers of the dead. Steel cold, wide open eyes screaming what they have seen. Sinking deep into the bed, 
he crawls over me with his heavy soul, breath hot and filled with the terrible. Hands upon my shoulders like railway spikes, our faces close. My heart dies with these memories that aren't mine. Swollen pain and terror has to escape. Captured by this man, kidnapped by this war, my screams can't fly, laying here in my still blood. As always, if you have any questions about the podcast or about Dibbic products or programs, or if you're interested in telling us your story, please feel free to email us at info at That's info at The TBI Family is produced and edited by Terry Welch and associated by me, Dr. Scott Livingston. It is a product of the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, commanded by Army Colonel Jeffrey Grammer, and the Defense Centers of Excellence for Psychological Health and Traumatic Brain Injury, commanded by Navy Captain Mike Colston. Thanks this week, of course, to Bill O'Brien, Sam Pressler, Betsy Eves, Marine Norman, and Melissa Komu. Thanks to the NEA's Creative Forces Program, the Armed Services Arts Program, the Yellow Ribbon Fund, and the Military and Veteran Caregiver Network. As always, thank you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.